Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, Entrepreneurship and Leadership channel listener on the New Books Network. Tonight, I'm here with my co-host, Kimon uh, Fontakidis, and we've got a very special guest today, Chris Ball, if I pronounce your name correctly. Chris is the Chief Scientific Officer and co-founder of AI Proteins. And I think, Chris, rather than me try to introduce you based on your LinkedIn profile, it would be way preferable if you introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced um, if you bump into someone at some kind of social event or party. Uh, yes, uh, hello, and thanks so much for, for having me today. Uh, I guess the way I introduce myself is, a, is a, I'm a lifelong protein geek and, and nerd. Um, been super interested in uh, proteins and protein structure and engineering proteins to do stuff since I learned about them in, uh, in high school. And uh, that's really, it took me through all of my training in undergraduate and, and graduate school, uh, postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle with David Baker, uh, really at the beginning of the de novo protein design renaissance. This is something that I would say has not fully penetrated the zeitgeist yet, but I think will in the coming years. It's a a new form of nanotechnology where we take the proteins in our cells that really are responsible for mediating all the chemistry that makes us alive and have an unprecedented level of control and ability to manipulate these things to do new types of chemistry. Um, so I started my own research group in 2017 at the Institute for Protein Innovation uh, and uh, Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's Hospital. And then last summer started exploring the opportunity to spin the company out of my lab that ultimately resulted in me shutting down my lab, uh, hiring all the postdoctoral fellows and research associates from my group into this new company and uh, fully taking the plunge out of academia and into the biotech field. Mm. That's quite. That's quite a very, very impressive introduction. When you say that to people you don't know, do they go white and look intimidated, <laughs> or, 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 or do they say, "Wow, holy shit, this is amazing"? I mean, it's not everyone who introduces themselves. They say, "Well, how do people react to that introduction?" Yeah, I mean, I think um, it depends on, on who, sort of who you're talking to, right? So, um, I would say in my field in particular, it's becoming increasingly common. So around the same time that uh, I was doing this and making this leap, um, two other academics from my field did something similar. Um, and so, and, and even, um, you know, when I was a, a postdoc going in, taking the, the jump from trainee to, to faculty, um, one of my colleagues in the Baker lab, uh, he, he is um, uh, Scott Boykin, uh, just an incredible scientist. I, I would say is the most prolific uh you know, academic researcher to come out of that organization ever. Um, just a lovely human and an absolute rock star. And, uh, you know, he, he got a couple grants while he was still a trainee and really had a ticket to just being faculty at any university in the world. And uh, he turned it all down and then started a company. And I think that in some ways was a, was a, a watershed moment, I think, for our field of transitioning away from basic research of trying to figure out how to do stuff into, oh no, we know how to do stuff. It's time to go use it to actually make a difference in the world. Let's take a step back. I'm, I'm a super layman. So when you said protein, I was thinking I was thinking something different at the very beginning. Then I understood what you were talking about, but maybe you want to just tell us I, I, what, like I can imagine what it can possibly do, but can you give us some sort of practical, potential practical applications for when you're manipulating the chemistry of the proteins, what you're actually able, that obviously is, probably has the potential to, to, to cure or to solve illness. Um, maybe you can just briefly talk about what the potential of this is. Cause I think it's like, it sounds like this is, this sounds really interesting to me. I'd like to hear about it. Yeah, definitely. So I, you know, I think one of the, the things that um, 
maybe not everyone understands. I think most people are familiar with like DNA and genetics and that's, I think, penetrated, uh, you know, most people's understanding. But I'm not certain that, that everyone understands that DNA is simply um, information storage. It's the blueprints to create proteins and then all sorts of regulatory stuff for like which protein should be man- made uh, at what time. But the primary role is just blueprints for proteins. And it's actually the proteins that do all the stuff that makes matter alive. Um, so from the, you know, the entry level kind of stuff that you could do with proteins is um, curing disease, right? So probably the one that most people are familiar with now is the Regeneron antibody cocktail that you know, made lots of headlines early in the pandemic. And antibodies are proteins. Um, our body, when you get a vaccine, it creates antibodies that recognize the foreign invader. These antibodies are proteins. So your, your body is essentially doing a directed evolution experiment. The same type of protein engineering principles that we do in the lab happens um, with your B cells. And that's how, you, that's how you get antibodies. So being able to engineer proteins you can use to cure disease, infectious diseases is, is probably the entry level thing that you can do. Um, some of the most valuable medicines on the planet right now target uh, an inflammatory pathway. Um, and these medicines essentially inhibit inflammation. And so it's useful for rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and these medicines like uh, Humira and Enbrel are protein medicines that are injected. So these are engineered proteins that are given to humans to cure so diseases. Let, let- when you when you engineer a protein and you, so are, are are there benefits to this um, apart from getting the result the response that you're looking for are you able to also somehow limit side effect does it is it any way better at limit because you should if you're engineering it you would imagine that you could somehow engineer out potential side effects as well is that a, a part of what you can do yeah it, it's always sort of hit or miss you, you like I've always felt that like Wesker or whatever modern medicine has always been like hey, look at this drug, let's see what it does. And then like, it does something, but then it also does something else. Whereas this, were, you know, and maybe it has an undesired effect as well. But here in this case, you're, you're, uh, you're actually able to engineer or limit this. So is it, I guess, is that a potential benefit of, of, of this type of, of this type of, uh, of this protein engineering, I guess? Yeah. So um, when you're thinking about side effects, there's two ways that you can get side effects, right? The first is on target side effects. So the medicine is supposed to work uh, a particular way and it does, and that also causes side effects. So for example, if you need to suppress your immune system in order to cure an autoimmune disorder where your immune system is attacking something in your body, um, you can, you can alleviate symptoms by suppressing the function of the immune system, but you know, you now have a suppressed immune system and you're vulnerable to infection. So the medicine worked exactly like it was supposed to. It's just unfortunate that that's, uh, that strategy for curing the disease has side effects. So, um, creating smarter protein-based medicines can allow us to manipulate things in the body in such a way that we can come up with better strategies that shouldn't have the same side effects. Okay. Um, and the other way that you get side effects and, and problems is through off-target toxicity. So your medicine binds to something that it's supposed to, to cure a disease. And it also binds to something that it's not supposed to, um, or when it's processed, like your liver, you know, the right. role of that organ is to break stuff down and get it out of the body and eliminate it. And sometimes it turns medicine into poison, um, kind of on accident. And that also causes issues. So, you know, protein-based medicines, protein is like food, right? And all of our cells make protein. It's, it's a material that your body knows how to handle and eliminate. And so you, you tend to not have as many um, problems with breaking, breaking things down. And with proteins, we can engineer them to bind to like the one thing you need it to bind to and nothing else. And so you, you have a lot fewer off-target effects of it interacting with something you don't want it to. One more, I know Richard's, I know where you're going to go, Richard, in a second, but one more question, because I, I just want to talk about like the outer space futuristic stuff. So like, I just, and then that'll just be like, a, and then we can get back, we can dig in. But where, so what's the future? Like, what is the future? How do you see, what's the potential future of this in terms of like, what is our future going to look like as this technology develops, let's say in the next 10, 20, 30 years? Can you give us just some crazy 
like whatever like forecast or like what because like i'm sure there's like some really cool stuff that like we, we'd like to hear like what so can you can you throw some of that stuff at us and then we can yeah. get back to, to reality <laughs> so that, i think that's the so um crazy future sci-fi stuff i think is uh probably really only five to ten years out for some of this stuff to start coming out um, like what like what like what kind of stuff like, yeah. Um, like, what kind of what kind of cures or what kind of like things are we going to be able to do? So, I, you know, I mentioned uh, I think earlier the, the the Novo Design Revolution, and so I, I think it's maybe important to to dig into that a little bit more. Um, so, um, until about ten years ago, when a protein engineer was creating a protein, we started with something in nature, and we tweaked it and changed it a bit and repurposed it and then used it again. Um, what de novo design means is we're building proteins completely from scratch. From the ground up, they have no evolutionary relation to a protein that has existed before um, in any organism. And I think that a great analogy for this transition in protein engineering is uh, humanity's transition in building materials from taking rocks that you should chip and reshape and trees that you cut up and change their shape and manipulate um, to having like concrete and steel and glass where you're taking natural materials, but fundamentally controlling the elements of, of their shape and their structure and how they can be used in their, in their properties. Um, you know, and humanity was able to build castles and the Roman aqueducts and all sorts of fantastic things by taking natural materials and, and reshaping them. But we didn't get skyscrapers until we had glass and steel. And that's the transition that we're, we're entering in to with de novo design is we're no longer restricted to reshaping the natural materials. We can now fully control their ability. Right. And so you can think about uh, chemical manufacturing, any type of viable chemical from ethanol to perfumes to medicines essentially can be produced with proteins instead. And so you can make these things in a bioreactor instead of with chemical processes. Um, much more control over medicine. So the ability to finally direct the immune system to be able to kill cancer, to be able to more effectively kill invaders, to be able to tune autoimmune diseases and also potentially aging. Um, fundamentally, aging is changes in protein levels and function, um, cells that didn't die that should have died that you can go and seek out and eliminate. And so we can start to have like really sci-fi stuff that seems today of like turning back the clock on aging starts to become in the realm of possibility. Um, new flavors uh, that, in an ability to control like the taste and smell of things. Uh, Biodefense becomes, a, I think, another really important one. There are lots of scary things that could happen that um, we can have effective countermeasures for with engineered proteins. Um, yeah, and I think that in some ways is like the tip of the iceberg. There's also, you know, new materials, cloth, fabric that can do all sorts of, you know, fancy things like spider silk yeah. is a protein. And so you think about the amazing properties of spider webs, that's proteins. So, uh, you know, new materials for creating structures also becomes possible through protein engineering. Wow. Amazing stuff. So basically, we're going to live forever. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> maybe, maybe the core team at AI Proteins will live forever. <laughs> um, is, this is, and as Keeman said, we have a lot of really interesting entrepreneurs here, but I don't think we've ever had anyone a bit like you. <laughs> on the show doing doing something quite so quite so remarkable and it's it's tempting to um go on go into more depth on what you're doing but obviously you've talked about foods chemical industry uh, defense and weapons <laughs> um clothing big pharma you know is this this scope is so wide i don't he, think he can... didn't say he didn't say weapons richard he said bio, uh, bio i defense. don't think he wants to develop weapons well no well well uh, uh, well if anyone from the department of defense is <laughs> listening that's what keeman thinks anyway um but let, let's um but i obviously you're you're you went on well 
highly successful on a sort of academic track and then one of someone you knew or had heard of jumped into business. Um, when you were younger, like a teenager or a university, did you ever think you might be an entrepreneur or were you in an environment where academic success was all you ever wanted to do? Well, maybe you didn't care about it. You wanted to just make not even academic success. You were just driven by science. And you know, Would you be surprised if... Five, five years ago, you heard what you're doing now. Would have you just been astonished, or did you have an entrepreneur? Uh, can you give? Because we're interested in the entrepreneurial journey of how people end up doing this weird thing of running a business. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I feel very fortunate to be where I am today. And um, you know, when I was when I was growing up, my uh, my dad was in the navy, and we moved every two years. He was a, a machinist mate. And so, you know, very mechanically minded and um, not a lot of guidance in how to be a successful scientist, like no real experience in my family on that. So when I took an interest in, in protein biochemistry as, as a high schooler, I just sort of went to college because I didn't know what the career track should look like. Um, stayed for a master's degree at, at the same place and then didn't really know what was next and someone mentioned like, oh, well, maybe you should do a PhD. So applied for that, not really having an idea of how this was going to become a career someday, but more just following the, uh, I'm super interested in proteins. What's the next step? How do I keep going with this? Um, and then, and, you know, in graduate school, you kind of get indoctrinated into the uh, academic mindset of academia is the important career and is the mark of success but, but it's highly competitive you didn't grow up with that that wasn't somewhere you, coming from your family you weren't being pushed in that direction you discovered it yeah sort of yeah fell, fell into it maybe is the mm. yeah is the is the way um my mother actually is somewhat entrepreneurial as well she started a couple of businesses in real estate so she's successful well that all happened after I left for college. So I didn't sort of have that uh, example growing up. Um, and did you, what sort of environment was it? And you mentioned your dad was in the military. The sort of stereotype is that's quite competitive, high standards, discipline. I don't know if that speaks to your childhood, but you know, were you being encouraged to go in any particular direction or did your parents just let you get on with whatever you're interested in and it happened to be proteins? <laughs> Yeah, super fortunate uh, to have very supportive uh, and, and awesome parents. And it was very much just kind of follow your dreams um, and uh, and do it well. Um, and yeah, just I, I think I was also a fairly willful child, so I'm not sure if they just wanted to spend all their time and effort. Trying to, <laughs> <laughs> to convince you not to do it. <laughs> yeah. And, and were you competitive? You mentioned high standards. Do it well. Were you competitive? Did you like, you know, if you would you play sports and like to win, or were you a sort of? And where, did you have siblings and you had to beat them, or because obviously you achieved, the thing is you you achieved really high standards in the in the world you chose to go into before you went into business. It wasn't like it, you, so. Where did that come from? Yeah, I, I guess I've always um, I, I like. Uh, trying hard at stuff. Um, but I've actually just never been that competitive of a person as far as like, I don't necessarily benchmark myself against others. And maybe that's just because I moved every two years growing up and the people around me changed so often. I didn't end up doing a lot of sideways comparisons and, and more of just um, looking inward of, of, you know, am I happy with how well this has been done or how, how well I can do this? Um, and I just really like learning new stuff and having new experiences, which has also, I think, been somewhat of a driver. Mm. So you've uh, you're you you have this graduate group. So what is the impetus? So you said you had you uh, you mentioned a, a colleague who had done who had set up the, their own thing, and I guess that was you know that was it. Was that you, you know you spoke, so oh wow that's cool maybe that's something that I can do, and then and then what was the impetus actually that drove you to actually take your research group and create a company? Yeah. So. Um, let's see. I think I've always been sort of a bad fit in academia, and I was sort of put into that track because that's what was shown to me is like the what success looks like. Um, and when I was going out on, in the, the faculty search, um, uh, 
I was told um, by by some folks uh, that uh, my ideas for my academic research group were too translational. Something I heard multiple times, even from like bioengineering departments at very prominent what, schools. I don't know what that means. Too translational. So in academia, the idea that uh, I think the main focus is on um, creating knowledge and on training people. And my plans were, I'm going to cure disease X, Y, and Z. Here's how we're going to do that. And I, I didn't really, I didn't understand that that's not what academia is for. Lots of academics write their grants to say, we're going to cure diseases X, Y, and Z by learning about them, not by creating molecules that are going to actually cure them. Sometimes they do that, but that's not really the it's not supposed to be the point of academia. So That's they, so they, the, they, the they, learn, they, they learn about stuff. They don't do stuff. At a very high level, I think that's the main difference between academia and biotech yes. is okay. academia's mission is to learn about disease. Biotech's mission is to cure those diseases. That's so uh, cool. But you have to that's, understand how it works, right? Absolutely. It's a highly synergistic process. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you set the company up with all these people that actually, you know, those are the only people that you could set a company up like that with. But anyway, back to the impetus. So, like, what was it? So, like, was there a moment of truth? Like, or I don't know, I guess we'll get to also funding. Did you get funding? What was the, how did that happen? I mean, like, you know, it's not, it's a big deal. I mean, I understand that you saw it as a fit. You're like, okay, this is actually, no, I want to do stuff. I don't want to learn about stuff. So this is, but then how do you get from A to B? I mean, how did you do that? Yeah, so fit is super important, right? Um, and so where I ended up landing is the Institute for Protein Innovation, which is a translational protein engineering institute founded by Tim Springer, who's probably the world's most successful protein engineer, entrepreneur. Um, and that environment was amazing. Um, I learned so much about how to do high throughput protein science, how to take the engineering principles that I had learned in academia and really um, do real translational science. And um, Boston in general is very entrepreneurial. I think, you know, the, the protein engineering space is becoming increasingly entrepreneurial overall, but Boston is just, there's so much crosstalk between academia and biotech in Boston. The community is so tight knit and there's just so much collaboration and community between academia and biotech that the wall that I had perceived in my mind started to fall. Um, and it seemed less like biotech is the other and more of just, oh, that's, I have a lot of friends. Continu in a continuation now. of maybe even, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so uh, in my research group, we also had a tremendous amount of interest in some of our core technologies from biotech and pharma companies that wanted to do sponsored research agreements. And the administration of my institute was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with the amount of sponsored research we were doing and wanted me to spend more time on grants and kind of, you know, at the end of the day, it's a translational protein engineering institute, but it's still like a nonprofit right. academic structure. Um, and I found myself more and more interested in the sponsored research and the like, well, let's go make a drug that's gonna cure a disease for and impact the lives of patients directly. So initially the idea was to spin a company out of the lab that would take some of the core technologies that were matured and some of the people would leave and, and go to that. And then the, the lab would stay intact and, and I would stay in academia um, and we would sort of split. Um, and when I started talking with VCs, the, the thing I heard over and over again is the question they would ask me is, well, are you gonna join this company uh, or are you just going to be another one of those people that, you know, spins it out of your lab? And, and there was definitely like a little bit of a judginess on the second option of, <laughs> of uh, you know, are, do you really believe in this or are you going to stay comfortable in academia? And um, I, I had never really thought about it like that before, but I realized that, no, I really truly believe in this technology with my, all of my heart. And I know that this has the ability to make a difference in the world and sort of uh, the additional piece of information that they were asking on top of that or giving me on top of that is in signaling that if you go to this all moves faster, uh, you'll be able to, to probably raise more money and, and you will have more team. And so I started really thinking about this and, and, you know, it's also just not impacting my life. It's the, the lives of all the trainees that were in my, in my lab at the time. And, so it's really important that it's a group decision. It's not 
it's not about me. It's about everyone. So I started having one-on-one conversations for just, so, uh, what do you think? We could all <laughs> jump ship together and do this biotech thing. And all of us, you know, we keep the team intact or we could kind of fracture. Some people go do the biotech thing. Some people stay in academia. Um, and I thought it was going to be kind of a mixed bag. Uh, what I was not anticipating was that sort of the unanimous answer was this biotech thing sounds awesome, especially if we can all go do it together. Um, and so that's, that ended up being uh, what happened. Uh, I kind of felt after I, I, talking with the team members, I had a mandate to go and, and do it. Um, Let, let's rewind a bit. A you, yeah, 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 you said you were, when you were chatting to VCs, so you must have started setting up appointments or, or, or they were stalking you. But like, if you just go to that moment where obviously you don't end up, VCs are busy people, so you don't end up talking to them just randomly in sequence if there's more than one. So how did, did you start making appointments? So can you just dig into the process where that you had, an, you had never spoken to one and then you spoke to one? Or how, how did you actually get to the point where you're, you're talking to VCs about a possible business? Yeah, so in some ways, I think that's the magic of Boston is that the VC community is very, I would say, closely connected to the biotech and academic scientific communities. Um, and so I've been I've been talking with VCs for years, just in some ways, I mean, some of them are colleagues from graduate school. Um, others, I you know, just sort of met through networking and and. Uh, the VCs are always very nice and, and very friendly, and they always want to know what's going on because they they want to you know fingers on the pulse of of the next you know core pieces of technology. And the VC community here is also very lovely and, and well interconnected. And so a lot of times they'll you know refer to the friends, and you know if the idea isn't right for their portfolio, they'll pass it on. And um, so getting finding VCs to talk with is you know I, I'd sort of already been talking with them, and then. Um, through my academic network as well, you know, uh, the VCs that I didn't know, people on my scientific network also knew and had connections with. So uh, I don't know if there's another place on the planet that has that kind of deep integration between the people creating technologies and the people that are funding those technologies and have such a large and rich community of both. I want to ask about the technical aspect of this because <clears throat> I'm just, I'm, I'm intrigued actually by it. So, I mean, and one thing is, so basically you all agreed, that's one thing, but then what? Then you, you guys went and formed a company. I have a couple of questions. One, you went and formed the company. And the second one is what happens with all this? Isn't this IP? Can you take it out? Like, how does that work? Like, do you, how does the whole thing work? If you're taking something out, if it's a private company, or are you, you must be taking some kind of IP with you. You've been working on something in this institute. So anyway, can you just explain a little bit? So I'm just fascinated by how this, how you actually, how this actually works. Or somebody pays for it, I guess. Maybe I don't know. Um, maybe there are, there are a couple of questions in there. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's start. Let's just start. How did you? Let's start with how did you form? So you, you guys all agreed that you want to do it. Then what? What was the next? What right. was the next thing? Yeah. So you know, as much like finding the right um, fit with an academic institution, it's maybe even more important to find the right fit with the, with the VCs. So um, for me, at least the right fit was with uh, smaller VCs that really like to get in super early. Uh, and, and, and in particular, really like to roll up their sleeves and, and get involved, right? So I'm, I'm a lifelong protein geek. I'm totally new to the entrepreneurial space. I don't know how to set up uh, accounting and <laughs> HR and all of that sort of stuff. That's super important. Um, and so the, we have uh, two, um, uh, lead co-investors and one of the investors came on as a co-founder and really brought the, the business team okay. and allowed us to accelerate everything actually did the incorporation process and okay. you know, brought lawyers and, and did all the kind of the nuts and bolts that it takes to go from, you know, crazy idea to, okay, here's where we're going to, do work and how we're going to pay people. Okay. And then, well, first of all, this, this all sounds extremely expensive. To me. Like I, I expect it's very expensive to do this kind of work. So this is like, a oh, this has to be a much larger, I'm not interested in like uh, numbers and stuff like that, but I did, I'm just imagining that this is very expensive to do this, but also sort of back to the question I was trying to ask before, 
is, is part of the initial sort of setting up the company, you pay a royalty or something like that to the Institute? Because I, I find it so interesting that you work together, you create some IP, which means you know how to do something, and then you want to take it and form a private company that they're not going to have anything to do with. So I assume that you must have had the, did you have to pay them? Is there a payment? How do you actually take, how does that work? So it's, it's very standard for companies when they spin out of academia for um, the academic institution to get some equity in the company. Oh, so equity. it's just sort of okay. standard. Okay. So there's- so they just there's, get equity in the company. Okay. Yeah, okay, so there's a license and equity, yeah. Okay, okay, so that, that is actually pretty straightforward. They don't get paid, because I thought they might actually just get paid a royalty or something like that. Okay, and then so you got the business side, you've got the money, obviously, to be able to get to work, you've got everybody engaged and you're doing it. Now, what's the, like, look, we actually haven't asked, we've been talking for half an hour, what actually is the main problem that you're trying to, uh, what's, I assume that there's one particular thing at this point, I mean, you're not, you can solve all the world's problems, but like, what's the one problem that you're trying to solve right now? Yeah. Great question. So, you know, we have the ability to create proteins from scratch. What, yeah, where do you start with that? So there's one particular type of protein that we're focused on. Uh, these are called mini proteins. So uh, mini proteins exist in nature and they are really neat. Um, <laughs> they have some cool properties and they can behave more like a small molecule, like aspirin is a small molecule, for instance, right? And you think about um, aspirin versus, say, the Regeneron cocktail, uh, antibody cocktail for COVID. Um, the like aspirin is the pill, super cheap to manufacture. You store it at room temperature. You take it, just you right. pop it, you, you swallow it. Uh, the Regeneron antibody cocktail is a protein, so it's it's expensive to manufacture, thousands of dollars a dose, right, to give to a patient as opposed to whatever pennies. Yeah, um, you have to go to an infusion site. The medicine has to be refrigerated before it's administered. So it has to be shipped cold and stored cold. Um, so there's like really big differences between these, these two types of medicine. So mini proteins kind of are a cool hybrid style molecule where uh, you can do the types of things that you would do with an antibody, uh, bind to your target really tightly and say neutralize a virus or block an inflammatory process in the body that causes, causes problems. Um, and you can, this essentially requires disrupting the function of proteins by binding to a certain site. You can think about like an engine running and you just like stick a wrench somewhere in and it blows all thing up, but you got to stick it in that one spot in the engine to make it blow up. You need to bind right. exactly to that one site. So we can do that with a mini protein, but they have a lot of the properties that you would normally associate with a traditional small molecule like aspirin and that they can be super cheap to manufacture. They're incredibly stable and durable, so they can survive the acids and proteases from an oral administration. Uh, so the, the all the digestive enzymes that your body uses to break down proteins, uh, you can boil them in acid and they don't care. So obviously you can store them <laughs> at room temperature and um, all sorts of stuff that would be impossible in antibody now starts to become uh, in the realm of possibility with a mini protein. Okay, so, so at this point you're building that you're you're building right you're building a mini protein. That's what you, you guys are doing. You're, is, that, is that an accurate description you're building or you're or yeah, so maybe not building or engineering? So we're a platform for creating mini proteins. And we're starting first in um, creating mini protein medicines, but the applications for mini proteins are far reaching. So uh, maybe a, a couple examples to, to kind of color what, what, what you can do with this. So um, in, in nature, you know, mini proteins are, uh, you know, we, we create them. There's these things called defensins, which are antimicrobial molecules that help infectious bacteria. Um, and, but maybe the cooler places you find them in nature are in venom. So scorpions and there's these like venomous cone snails that, uh, that inject mini proteins into fish and then, then to paralyze them so they can eat them. Um, and then scorpions and spiders also have, have these mini proteins in their, in their venoms as well. So uh, these molecules can do remarkable stuff, but they're really hard to repurpose and re-engineer as well. Um, so the structure, once it's formed, is really, really stable, but it's really brittle to engineering. So if you start trying to muck around with it to make it do something other than what the scorpion intended, uh, you basically just break the molecule and it, it becomes useless. Um, so that's where our de novo 
engineering comes in is we can right. shape the molecule in its entirety and make it do whatever we want it to do. And this is, I would say the foundational breakthrough that the company is based on is that we can kind of create these for whatever challenge we need to solve. Um, but the natural ones can also do some cool stuff. And there's a couple examples of commercial, uh, commercial products that are based on natural mini proteins. Um, one of them is a, a component of scorpion venom. It's called chlorotoxin. It's a bit of a misnomer because the protein itself doesn't, it's not toxic to humans. But one thing it does do that's really interesting is it happens to bind to cancer cells. No and so there's a, a company called Blaze uh, Biosciences. It's in Seattle that stuck a fluorescent molecule onto, the, onto this component of scorpion venom and it causes tumors to glow. And so when a surgeon is in removing a tumor from a patient, the margins are really important, right? Uh, particularly yeah, yeah. in like brain tumors like glioma, where you really want to make sure you're getting all the cancer. You really don't want to take tissue out that right. uh, is not cancer. Uh, and when you have a patient's skull open, uh, sending tissue samples down to pathology to look at the margins uh, is, you know, those are precious seconds. Yeah. So, um, so that's a really cool thing. Um, limitation of that is that the, this thing happens to bind in the liver as well, which is not great. You can't like stick poison on it and use it to bring poison to the cancer. So I think also highlights the limitations of the natural molecules, the, the need to really have better control over what they do. And you mentioned that you, you said you're making a platform. So does that mean you're selling to like R and D your client, potential clients of big pharma R and D labs or, you know, Bayer chemicals or, so you, you, it's sort of like B2B, you're not actually, you're giving people kits to make this stuff as, a, or you're making a kit and then other people use it, or are you actually developing things for, as it were, the end users? Right. So um, there's a couple uh, plans, uh, I got a couple aspects to the, the business strategy right now. The, the first one is certainly to partner with other companies that have a challenge, right? Like we want to cure disease X, a mini protein that did, you know, bound to target X would enable us to cure this disease. And so we can go create that molecule and then in collaboration with, uh, with the partner, uh, sometimes, you know, plugging it into the partner's technology. So one of the things I, I didn't mention is that mini proteins are very versatile. And when we create them from scratch, we can also make them play nicely with other technologies. So you could start to use these as a targeting agent or, you know, uh, fused to some other type of or piece of technology. But um, so that partnership strategy is certainly another, certainly a big element of it. Um, but we also have internal programs where we're developing our own right now medicines. Uh, and the idea is probably to bring them and then license them out once, once they show that they work or potentially to spin companies out uh, that would go and, and further commercialize those. But the, the main emphasis is keeping the platform intact. Uh, we think this is a font of new medicines and ultimately other molecules in other areas like ag or biodefense. Um, and we want to make sure that the platform continues to produce these molecules. Hmm. So a really interesting business challenge is that this is incredibly exciting, but it might be quite hard to be invoicing people and getting people to pay you. And <laughs> I just wondered, like, how did, when you kicked off, did you have like a runway or like you, you knew that you had enough money for two years, given your headcount or whatever? And what was the, have you managed to get anyone paying or because it's Boston, they're still hurling money at you and you don't have to worry about revenue yet. Because how, how, many, how many months or years have you been in business since the day of incorporation? Yeah, so we've, we've been running thing, uh, operations. We started uh, November 1st of 2021. So we're getting close to 10 months now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, very fortunate to have uh, really amazing and committed investors. Um, and then it's, yeah, it's also Boston is a great place, not just for the VC community, but also just the biotech community in, sure. in general. So, um, uh, yeah, you know, partnerships can often bring in upfront revenue. Um, but how, I guess Richard's question is, do you have any paying clients or how do, you, or, or, or again, if you, this is not something that you can't answer, I, I, I don't want to ask anything like whatever confidential, but, or like, what's the plan for like, like, because I can imagine, honestly, being in this sort of incubator stage for a long time, because there's a lot of work probably to do before you can start 
rolling things out, I suspect, but I don't know. Is there, is there a, is, that's why the runway, is there a longer period of time before you actually do need to start or, or how does, how does that work? Or do you need to bring it in? Like where, you know, we need to start paying for this fast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess without going into too many details, I can say that we have a, a fairly comfortable runway at the moment. Um, and the, we want to make sure that we're able to realize the full value of the, of the of the platform, the full potential that they're able to achieve, and so if you sell early, you sell cheap. Um, so it's important to get a few early wins that essentially we could do at a discount in order to show that our our technology really works, that it's safe, that the molecules um, are not harmful to animals, that they are able to function and cure the disease as as designed. Um, but you don't want to you don't want to do too many of those too early and, and kind of at a discount um, because right. you could have some really valuable products early on. That uh... I have to ask another layman's question back to the actual uh, back to the actual uh, mini proteins themselves. <clears throat> Every time, so let's say you get because imagine that you have somebody that says, "Hey, I'm gonna I want to buy this. I want I want to solve this problem." The mini pro it's not you're not just creating like mini proteins that are that they can then take and somehow repurpose. You actually have fit for purpose. You are making them fit for purpose for this particular case. Is that, is that, okay. Cause I, yep. I, I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. So that, that's the way that works. That makes that, that, so basically that's, that means that all the IP, which is great stays with you basically because yeah, I here you want to solve this problem. Y'all here's the formula, here's the mini protein for solving this problem. Here's the mini protein for solving that problem. Here's the mini protein for doing. Yeah. It's like, seems like it's endless. <laughs> it's an endless, like, it's an endless, endless uh, possibilities actually. Are there any other companies doing this? Are there any other, like, are you, do you have a lot of competition in the mini, in the mini, I know in the, you know, in general, there's probably competition, but in the mini protein space, is there a lot of other companies doing it? Yeah. So that's, I think one of the cool things, about our position and maybe why uh, our investors are so excited about us is at the moment, we're the only uh, mini protein platform company out there. So there are a couple of proteins that are commercializing, or sorry, a couple of companies commercializing natural mini proteins. So I, I mentioned uh, Blaze Bioscience in Seattle has uh, their molecule they call tumor paint uh, that makes tumors glow. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, there's actually a, a, a pesticide company called Vesteron Corporation, and they have a, a mini protein originally isolated now from spider venom, and it selectively kills pest insects, like uh, worms, and uh, doesn't harm pollinating insects like bees. And you know this is not a, a future thing. They're not doing R and like R and D on this. They have commercial products that are, you know, people are eating right now, uh, based on these mini protein pesticides. And then, but again, that's that's uh, the that's using natural the natural natural ones, resources, yep. natural ones. Yeah. Okay. So but you're the, you're that... doing you're, yeah you're building it. I mean, you're the only one that's actually building them from, from scratch. Correct. Yep. Um, so far, people have found natural mini proteins that serendipitously did something useful, and then figured out how to commercialize it. Um, we're the only ones that can do this the other way around, where I have a problem, but I don't have a mini protein, and we can create a mini protein to solve that challenge. Mm. So you obviously have a massive number of choices as what to do with your time and team and resources. And I imagine you spend a lot of time brainstorming and thinking about how to do that. And is there anything you can show when, when you're in that sort of pioneering tech space, you don't have that many benchmarks. So how do you, how do you get insight into how to prioritize in that? environment it must be very tricky i'd have thought do we do pesticides or do we do we do burger flavors or or, or cancer yeah uh for sure you absolutely um you know hit the hit the nail on the head is when you have all this choice how do you how do you choose what to do first um and the um maybe the answer is somewhat like and I, I, maybe it's a poor analogy, but somehow Tesla started, right? Where they started making supercars and they used that to establish the technology and the infrastructure to be able to create commuter cars. Um, so right now, um, amino oncology and inflammatory disease are the luxury 
medicines that uh, have really huge markets. And so that's where we're going first in order to establish ourselves uh, to be able to create value for our shareholders that we can use to branch out into other areas that maybe have still profitable margins, but not quite the same enormous margins that inflammatory disease and amino oncology currently enjoy today. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned, I'm switching away from the tech to the organization. You mentioned that you're a geek and interested in proteins and you had a, you had a co-founder who took care of like the business stuff um, or some of the business topics. So is, is there anything in the world of like being an entrepreneur that you've found particularly challenging compared to your life pre-incorporation like in terms of surprises that you just like you this is so much harder than you thought and it seems so simple or or the other way around i don't know why people worry about sales so much it's a doddle so like whether it's something much anything you found surprising or that you can reflect on because a lot of people who listen to this are people who are thinking one day they're going to have a business and there's nothing like hearing from someone who actually did that and your perspectives might be a little unusual and worth hearing yeah uh, so I think one of the things that I hadn't appreciated um, until going into biotech is, um, so I, I joined the, I mentioned the Institute for Protein Innovation. What I didn't mention is that it was a brand new institute. So I was one of the founding faculty members there and um, was there really from the ground up. And so saw all the process of putting this together um, and a lot of that experience translated over to starting a biotech company. I mean, I don't know how to do HR, but at least I know that you need HR and this is a, you know, what it's useful for, which before uh, <laughs> uh, going to a startup institute, you know, those are all the things that just was working already and I didn't have to think about or care about or know that it existed. Um, so I, I would say I was, I felt shockingly prepared um, uh, completely by accident. Um, but I guess for advice for other people who want to do this, I mean, uh, maybe to be smarter and more intentional about your path than, than I was. And, and rather than luck into this experience of seek it out <laughs> explicitly. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that's trying to, works. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think if you talk to nine out of 10 entrepreneurs they they've lucked their way. They've basically didn't play like, okay. Some people have like, Maybe Elon Musk shows one, two, three, one, two, three, but a lot of people don't. They do like you. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. It just it goes that way. But sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no. Um, I, I mean, one of, one of the things that I also, I know I keep uh, saying how awesome Boston is, and I'm sure there are other communities that are like this as well, but I think in general, the entrepreneurial community is very welcoming and and uh, encouraging. And so it's, it's easy to get a lot of advice from very smart people. Um, everyone is just genuinely uh, helpful and wants to see and is willing to share their advice and experience. And I benefited enormously from just talking with people who had you know, learned hard lessons the hard way and were willing to, to share that with me so I could learn different hard lessons the hard way. <laughs> How about managing? Like I would have guessed, but I have a feeling that the answer is gonna be you, because you had this experience. And I think that's actually the key, Richard, here is that he had this experience in the Institute. There actually had a lot of sort of structure that actually wasn't too far away from being a company. Because but one of the things I would imagine is uh, just management, the idea of just dealing with managing people. That's often something that trips up uh, <clears throat> entrepreneurs. Uh, they can't let go, they, whatever, they become a bottleneck. I mean, there's just a lot of things that happen, particularly in smaller, in smaller groups. I, I don't know, if, is that, because of the fact, as I said, that you had the same group of people, you managed them. I, I assume you were basically their manager, so you effectively managed them there, and now you've moved over. But, so their management has not been like that part of it. The people side of it, as you know, you've mentioned HR, but I mean the actual human interaction piece hasn't been a, a, a challenge, or it's been relatively straightforward for you. <laughs> well, I would say it's both been a challenge, but um, I guess also it's been easy at the same time. I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm very fortunate in that I work with, with very smart, very talented people. And so um, I mostly just need to listen to them and uh, get out of their way, I feel like is the, 
is, <laughs> is my role. Um, and to make sure that they have the resources that they need to succeed. Um, so uh, it's been, that, that part has been, has been very fun. So, uh, you know, any, anytime there's a big challenge coming up, like, you know, we did transition from academia where it was, the group was mostly postdoctoral fellows um, with a very, very flat hierarchy, very egalitarian. Um, and then we had to transition into biotech, which has a more rigid corporate hierarchy, but how to keep it as egalitarian as possible because, you know, good ideas come from anywhere. And to make sure like we all have that same mentality of we, we win when patients get cures, that's, that's what matters. And how do we make sure that we're doing that? And that's the focus and it stays the focus. Um, and, and there was a bit of, you know, threading the needle and uh, I didn't do it by coming, you know, being a dictator and saying, here's how we're going to do it. Uh, you know, we, we managed to do this by all coming together and saying, how are we going to build our, our career ladder? What do we, what do we value in uh, for success and how do we benchmark promotions and just letting the group decide how to do all that um, where everyone got to contribute, everyone's voice is heard. And, and ultimately, you know, um, you know, these types of big organizational directions are, it's a grassroots decision. Mm. It all sounds very, sounds like a good management style to me. Yeah. And one thing you mentioned, I think I, I've ever inferred it, or you said it explicitly that you don't have a, an ego issue that quite often very talented people, entrepreneurs have a very high opinion of themselves and therefore become quite hard for talented people to work for because the smartest guy in the room is the CEO and founder because he's usually a guy, he's just totally convinced that he's a, he's the bee's knees or whatever the right expression is these days. And it sounds to me like you didn't actually, it's not so much about you, Chris, is it? It's about the project and you provided the outcomes are good. It, your name doesn't have to be splashed on the front page of Fortune magazine or whatever. Yeah, I, uh, I, I care. I, I'm, uh, I would say a mini protein evangelist. So um, I very much believe in the potential for these molecules to do a lot of good in the world. And that's, that's what is successful. Like the molecules are going to help people. And that's the, the ethos for the company, for the team, for everything that we do is impact. Uh, it's not about us. It's about the people that lives improve because we did something useful. Mm. That's great. And, and it's, without being cynical, someone listening might think, yeah, this sounds too good to be true. Have you had to like, have, have you had tough issues like firing people and like nasty stuff that you can share? Obviously you don't have to share anything at all if you don't want to, but have there been like difficulties where you've had to be like, not the friendly, nice guy, but the guy who says, sorry, you don't fit or firing a client or you're know, maybe a bust up with your, your former Institute of Protein Engineering, where they're incredibly disappointed that you wrecked it by first form. I was wondering whether the guy who founded it, he's an investor and he's delighted with what you're doing, or is he slightly disappointed that Chris stole my team? And that has there been anything that's been really hard that you can talk about? Um, so let's see. I mean, obviously it's not always, you know, rainbows and bubblegum. Um, there's, there's obviously, you know, challenges, but I, you know, I think um, approaching any challenge from at least from a, a you know a personnel perspective of of just being very supportive and you know i think that um we can always be well aligned even if there is a problem in that um and i think this is maybe somewhat of an academic mentality that i've carried with me of you know in, in academia it's very important the trainee's success is the mentor's success. And I, I think that's true. It should be true <laughs> everywhere at all times. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's not always the case. Um, uh, but I really always have that in mind. And, you know, if it's, if someone's not a good fit, they're not going to be successful here. I still want them to be successful, even if it's not with us and their success later in life is still like they're, they will, they can't take it back. Right. I mean, they worked with us. There's no way around that ever. Um, so we're always on their CV and they will always be in some ways tied to us and represented and representing us. And so I want them to do as well as they possibly can in their life. And, um, if that's like truly and honestly at the front of your mind in all these interactions, it becomes much more easier, uh, much easier because you're still their ally, even if, uh, uh, you know, things aren't, aren't working out. Um, and 
yeah, the, I mean, the Institute was incredibly supportive of us spinning out. I'm very grateful to, uh, to my, you know, uh, academic colleagues in that regard, you know, the, the Institute, one of the kind of the founding tenants, uh, and the mission of the Institute is to support entrepreneurship in the protein sciences. And so I think they were very excited to have the first successful, you know, company that, uh, um, you know, helps to, uh, I guess, achieve that part of the mission. We're, we're, we're sort of starting to run out of time. I, I don't want, I, what I would like to, I, I have to go back to the, 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 like, we, can we go back just a little bit to like, where are you going to be? Like, where is this? Okay. We talked a little about the futuristic, we're all going to live forever, but let's talk a little bit about uh, your company. Sorry. What's the name of your company? I don't know if you told us in this whole time, it's kind of important. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Um, the name of the company is AI proteins. Oh, AI proteins. Okay. Maybe we did here at the beginning. Um, AI proteins. And at, so where, like, can you give us some like grandiose future vision of where AI proteins can be? Cause I assume this is, this is like a, it's a, okay. Like perfect world. This is a perfect fit for you. You're doing, you're loving the work, whatever. Money's not an issue. You can do pro the projects you want to do. It all goes like perfectly according to plan and, and continues to grow and grow and grow. Where is this thing in like five, 10, 20, you know, where is it, where is this thing? Where can this thing go? Uh, and what are you doing? And what kind of things are you doing? Let's, uh, let's have a little bit of dream at the end, any like uh, dream at the end of this. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. This is super fun and definitely you yeah. know, something I, I also <laughs> think, think a lot about. Um, and um, so, you know, the first and most important thing, obviously, is to realize the potential of many proteins. So right, right now we're in the therapeutic space, but I would love to branch out into, into other, other areas that we mentioned, mentioned earlier, um, agriculture and flavorings. And, you know, many proteins can do all sorts of stuff, um, you know, but the, the name of the company is AI proteins, not AI mini proteins. So the, the technologies that we're, that we're developing and using for mini protein engineering are not restricted to mini proteins alone. Uh, there are certainly things that we're tailoring, but as much as possible, we're creating a general platform for protein design and engineering with the, the grand vision of being able to apply these technologies to other types of proteins in the future. And so this means enzymes, structural proteins, kind of, you know, you name it, proteins mediate all of the chemistry of life. And so if you can create proteins, you can do any chemistry that anything that's alive can do. And you can do a lot more than that as well. Can you create humans? Uh, well, I can't because uh, I don't have a uterus, but um, I do know that there's probably about 50% of the population on the earth right now can do that. I, I, I'm just wondering what, what, what can you actually build with? Like you said, I mean, it sounds like the, the, it's an, like, it's a limitless, it almost sounds limitless when I hear you describe it. That's why I want to just like throw something crazy there. You just like, I mean, you can yeah. basically do any, you, you can create anything. So it sounds like. So if you really want to go far out, let's, let's go there together. Um, the, <laughs> right now we're, we're focused on disease, right? Yeah. And we want to cure disease because obviously human suffering is, is horrible and it's right up, you know, up, up front and center. Um, Where do you go once disease is mostly under control? It's not like all of this biotech just goes away. Oh, I would cure disease, done, <laughs> right? Um, obviously, people are not going to be satisfied with just being healthy. We want to be enhanced, right? You want to live longer. You want to live healthier. You want to be stronger. You want to all sorts of, of, of stuff, right? And so I think that we're going to increasingly see a pivot of the entire field of biotechnology, um, as disease starts to get more and more under control, um, moving towards enhancement. And, um, you know, this is paired with advancements in DNA printing and DNA synthesis technologies that are going to make it increasingly possible to do gene editing in humans. Um, right now, most people are very uncomfortable with this, but Things change fast. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I'm totally comfortable. What, what, what's the, what does that, like, again, I'm not deep into this, so I don't know. I haven't done, I'm not in that sci-fi space, so I'm kind of curious. What is that, so like, 
talk to the layman here. What is gene? What can I do with the, with gene editing and this kind of stuff? What, I'm sure this is like a lot of people would hate to hear this, and you can't do this, whatever. So if you're listening and you don't like this, turn it off because <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I'll start with an, ex an example of something that has already happened that I, ho I hope people have heard about, but I worry that not enough people have heard about it. So there are humans today who have been gene edited like at the, when they were single cells and are alive in China today. So no, I this was a, a, no. And what does it this mean? This was though? a big they scandal. Yeah, okay. a, there was a big scandal several years ago. It was done in China sort of in secret. Um, and um, they there were, were given attributes. They were given attributes like I want a boy. I want him that. Like, is that the kind of stuff we're talking about? They were engineered to be immune to HIV um, because the parents uh, had a parent that was HIV positive. Now, there's plenty of medicines that you can use to make this uh, safe and to not have the baby be HIV positive. But this person, I think, just wanted to be the world's first to do gene editing, germline gene editing in humans. So these are heritable changes. Like right. these are now in the gene pool. It will be passed on to other humans. Um, oh, wow. And, um, and so this, this sort of happened in secret, but that's... Um, that the create the way that they made these immune to HIV also created vulnerabilities to other infections because it wasn't done in a very good way. And they also right, right. potentially have changes in other parts of their genome that was unintentional. It is, uh, could have health consequences later, but, but that, that's sort of, I would say the tip of the iceberg is instead of trying to cure disease after right. you get it with a therapy, you can right. edit the genome and add stuff in or take stuff out to just make people uh, immune or invulnerable to these types of uh, disease. So we're we're basically it. talking Superman because let's go beyond. We fix all that stuff, and then when you say enhancements, we're getting the best eyes, the best vision, the best smell, the strongest muscle. Is that what we're? Is that where? Yeah. So maybe another example of something that's kind of sci-fi that you could, again, just tip of the iceberg sort of stuff is. And this this study was fairly old. Um, I think it was the early 2000s. Uh, it's a really lovely paper. So when you exercise your muscles, you know, you, they burn, right? And that's lactic acid is because when your, your muscles, they need to process sugar. And when they don't have enough oxygen, because your blood can't pump it there fast enough, um, they start to, as a byproduct of eating the sugar, they make this lactic acid that builds up in your muscles. And it's also why you like massage muscles after exercising to get the lactic acid, break it up and get it out. And it has to travel through your blood, go to your liver where it's turned back into sugar. And then it can be shipped back to your muscles to, to power power activity. So this research group took the enzymes that do that in the liver and they put them in the muscles, right? Um, and so now your muscles have the ability to just turn that lactic acid right back into sugar and just eat it, right? And they, they did this with a mouse and the, they put these like two mice, a regular mouse and this super mouse on a treadmill uh, and had them run. And, you know, the regular mouse ran something like a hundred meters and got tired and, you know, full sprint. And it was pretty good effort. And the super mouse ran like a half marathon before, before it got tired. Right. <laughs> and so, you can imagine there's all sorts of evolutionary reasons why you shouldn't be able to burn that much energy in a row, or it could be detrimental right. for, for, you know, things out in the wild. But, uh, you know, today in the developed world, food for, you know, for people in higher income brackets is, is not rate limiting. Um, and so you can start to think about just eating fantastical amounts of food and being able to run forever. Right. I mean, those are types of things that, you know, at full sprint, like those, those are not sci-fi. Those can happen. It's just yeah. a matter of when and will it be done ethically? Yeah. And so I, I came and already mentioned the time and I, I, you're, the work you're doing seems so important in a way. I, I don't want to keep you out of the lab, but there is, <laughs> there, there is, um, I, I'm serious. I, I, I feel incredibly grateful that you've shared your time with us, but in terms of, I've read a paper about synthetic biology saying that the world dairy industry in 10 years time will be totally disrupted. We won't need cows anymore. But I'm thinking in terms of, you know, basic old fashioned Karl Marx economics, you know, technological progress, cost structures, 
and competition. What industries you, would you expect to be deeply disrupted by radical 10x, 100x reductions in cost, potentially thinking of the environmental factor that you know, we're all rightly very concerned about global warming, at least not, not we all. We all should be, and a significant percent of the planet are concerned about global warming and climate change. But if you think about areas where, when you look at the technology, this could radically reduce the cost of, I don't know, making fertilizer or needing fertilizer. Do you see a sort of like, as it were, things that you just know they're coming, but you're just focusing on high value added pharmaceuticals for now. But could you just shed light on where you see massive disruption coming down the line? Right. So um, not, not to not answer it directly, but there are certain things like, so, um, you know, R&D costs are very high and manufacturing costs can be high, but um, it's possible through many proteins and, and other synthetic biology approaches to drive down the costs of, of a lot of medicine, at least for the R&D and manufacturing, shipping, all that sort of stuff. The question of whether that will turn into cost savings for patients is uh, <laughs> an economics question, and I'm not sure about uh, how that's going to relate to the R&D and manufacturing costs. So that, that's maybe a separate discussion. We could probably spend an hour talking about that in particular, but um, other industries where I would say um, that are ripe for disruption. I mean, I think the obvious one is in chemical manufacturing, right? I mean, a lot of chemical manufacturing is very expensive and really bad for the environment. And if you can have a, a protein or a string of proteins that can take some raw chemicals and put them together in really sophisticated ways to create the chemical product at the end, you can dramatically reduce your costs. And I think that's going to become more and more prominent um, and probably the first things. And, you know, as far as agriculture, um, people have to first get comfortable with genetically engineered foods. Um, I think there are lots of good reasons why people are suspicious of this technology, but um, we need to change and we need to change fast because our planet is increasingly getting hot. And if we want to be able to have reliable crops that can survive extended heat waves and droughts and still have high yields and um, save us from destroying the environment of dumping massive amounts of fertilizer into the ground and requiring all sorts of horrible pesticides that are killing all the pollinating insects and, and having other side, horrible side effects. You can basically fix all that by just engineering the plants, engineering, putting new proteins in it that protect them from uh, from heat and change their ability to withstand drought and put extra processes in them so they can kind of create their own fertilizer and then make them resistant to pests. We can do all that stuff, but people then have to want to eat that food afterwards. And unfortunately they may not have a choice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this exactly. may be the only crops that we can actually, you know, sustainably grow in, in the future. If we don't dramatically change, uh, you know, how seriously we're taking the, the climate change. Amazing. Well, awesome. if you, I, 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 is there anything else you'd like to? I mean, I think this has been an unusual podcast for Kim and myself in terms of the, 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 the breadth and importance of your vision. But is there anything else you haven't had a chance to say you'd like to share before we wrap? Um, maybe just I'll start on a on a positive note. I mean, we face a lot of challenges uh, today, uh, disease and climate change, just to to name a couple. But um, there are so many smart people with so many different really cool technologies that are all working right now to make the world better. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. Um, I know it's easy to be pessimistic right now, but I do think things are uh, going to get a lot better for a lot more people on the planet today. Um, and I think that's going to be thanks to the, the efforts of a lot of engineers who are creating technologies that are going to be transformative. Well, that, that was awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. I, I think I echo Richard's comment. I don't, we don't want to, we feel like every moment we're keeping you on this podcast is a moment that, that, that is, that, that we're, we're, hard, we're, hard, we're doing a detriment that hopefully the, the, the message will go out. And I think the end was particularly good. I think you're, uh, you know, the positive message at the end is an awesome way actually to wrap it up. I wish I studied harder at biology and chemistry because I think I could have given you a lot better questions. But, uh, but it was really, no, really nice to meet you and super fascinating. Good luck. I, I'm sure you'll be successful. Good luck and thanks thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, uh, guys. Uh, this was really fun today. Uh, I enjoyed getting a chance to chat with you and, and share some of the, the crazy stuff that we're working on. 